Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Mary Marr never just turned up. She arrived, bustling with ideas, lists, demands and questions. Bright, curious eyes sparkling as she filled the room with energy. You'd almost feel sorry for Mother Mary Ignatius of the Holy Child, who was one of the first to encounter Mary's relentless questioning in a Chicago classroom while encouraging a group of ten-year-olds to pray for the conversion of godless Russia. As the Cold War raged, Mother Mary Ignatius explained that the deprived children of communist Russia had no personal property of their own. All property was shared. Mary Marr shot up her hand. What's wrong with that? she asked. Do the Holy Child nuns not make a song and dance about living in a community? Why is sharing wrong in Russia but right for the nuns in Chicago? And don't all the Irish families share hand-me-down clothes? Mother Mary Ignatius told her to sit down. On graduating from university, Mary Marr worked for three years in the Chicago Tribune, but the arch-Republican newspaper was not a comfortable home for her. On a visit to Dublin in the early 60s, she met the irrepressible news editor of the Irish Times, Donald Foley, who was impressed by her intelligence. They took up an immediate friendship, he asked her what she thought of the Kennedys. Mary said she disagreed with the hagiography surrounding them, and the jury was still out on their legacy. She could have played it safe, but that honest answer was to mark the beginning of four decades as a journalist at the Irish Times. Mary, who died in St Vincent's Hospital in November 2021, was born on November the 9th, 1940, to Bonnie Burns and a lawyer, James Marr. As a journalist, trade unionist and a founder member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, she made a profound impact on Irish journalism and leaves multiple legacies. I remember talking to one of the residents of Mountjoy Square, Paddy Behan, about Mary's visit to his home during the Dublin Housing Action Committee's campaign against slum conditions. Some journalists came up and had a look. Mary Marr stayed and listened called Paddy. That ability to listen was reflected in her work on the Irish Times Women's Page. Mary Marr was the first Women's Page editor, even though she had initially opposed the idea of a segregated page. Donald Foley changed her mind. The proposal was not merely to reproduce the kind of fluffy stories she had flown across the Atlantic to avoid. Why not have a woman's page with serious articles? How could she refuse? Her first comrades on the women's page were Maeve Binchy, Mars' long-time collaborator and friend, and Rena Houlihan, an accomplished reporter with a strong news sense. Maeve and Mary set to the task with relentless energy. The marriage ban, contraception, unmarried mothers, deserted wives, family law, children's courts, prison conditions, travellers' rights, all these became hot topics for public debate. In her own life, she broke through a myriad of glass ceilings. She was the first married woman to return to work in the Irish Times, 
the first woman to take paid maternity leave at the paper, the first woman to lead the NUJ at the Irish Times. When she retired in 2001, Mary was the first NUJ member in Irish newspaper history and the first woman, accorded a lockdown, a noisy, exuberant tribute traditionally reserved for male printers. Throughout her life, Mary loved music and song. She sometimes claimed that while she found a career in Dublin, she really stayed for the music. She was a founder member of the Clay Club and a regular contributor to their singing sessions with her distinctive melodic voice. Her own musical tastes were Catholic. She was reared on the music of John McCormack and at the drop of a hat or the clink of a wine glass could burst into one of those songs her father and mother loved. Molly Brannigan, teaching Macfadden to waltz, or the minstrel boy. Before then, moving on to Bread and Roses, Buddy Can You Spare a Dime, or If You Miss Me at the Back of the Bus. Coming to live in Ireland opened up the world of Irish traditional music, songs and ballads. Her friends all have their own memories of her voice, as she sang songs like Frank Hart's Johnny Dial with the magical description of Ring's End, which she loved, the jewel that sparkled by the daughter, or When Two Lovers Meet, which she'd picked up from the singing of Dolly McMahon. She has left us a rich store of memories of sessions at the Merryman School in Clare, in Liberty Hall, in the Teachers' Club, and in conference halls the length and breadth of Ireland and beyond. Mary donated her body to medical research, and left orders to be remembered with an evening of music and song. Last Sunday, on May Day, we honoured her wishes in the Mansion House, in music, song and story, and later in the Teachers' Club on Dublin's Parnell Square, where Mary herself loved to sing of bread and roses, of love and loss, of struggle and strife. Her voice may be silent, but she leaves a remarkable legacy. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand ill locks grey, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. What a people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. Our son Owen had spinal surgery during his school's transition year. A history and classics fanatic, he missed the school trip to the Colosseum in Rome. So in the summer of 2019, we pack him, his wheelchair and his assistant's dog Duke into the family car a brand new, specially adapted passenger van. Packed to the roof with four teenagers, a large golden retriever, suitcases, laptops, iPads, smartphones and two large 10 kilo bags of dog food, we head to Dublin Port on our odyssey. Two ferries and several motorways, autoroutes and autostrada later, we arrive in Rome on Tuesday the 23rd of July. Teeming with tourists, It bakes in 38 degrees of heat. In insane traffic, we navigate our way towards the Colosseum. As luck would have it, we find a disabled parking bay close by. In brilliant sunshine, we queue at the Palatine Hill 
for entry to the forum. Some Italian policewomen approach us. Gesturing at Owen's wheelchair and Duke the dog, they lead us to the top of the queue and usher us through the turnstiles. Owen gets VIP treatment. He insists we see everything. I manhandle him and his chair into and around temples. Vesta, Romulus, Augustus, Julius, across cobble streets and into the arena of the Colosseum itself. Eventually, exhausted, we head back to the car. But it's not there. I find a policeman. Our car seems to have been towed, I tell him. He places his arm around my shoulders. No, senor. It is not towed. It is stolen. It happens every day in Roma. The teens pop out their earpods. What did he say? The car has been stolen. With everything in it. Suitcases, laptops, iPads, 10 kilo bags of dog food and our passports. We're shocked into complete silence. 2,500 kilometres from home, all I can hear is my own heartbeat and the relentless whirring of crickets in the surrounding trees. The silence is finally broken when Owen makes two fists and curses loudly. Duke pants and wags his tail at the elegantly dressed policeman. Dario, the most philosophical police officer in Rome, studies our faces and says, OK, OK, tranquilo. You are all safe, all together. He walks us to the police station, Castura di Roma, the grandly titled Commissario de PS Sezionale Esquilino on Via Petrarca. The police stare at our forlorn family through the bulletproof glass in reception. A buzzer sounds, a door clicks, and they welcome us into the air-conditioned office area. La Familia Irlandesa. A very tall policewoman, the boss, pushes her way towards us. In perfect English, she directs us into her office. The cops bring bottles of coke for the teens. One detective, with mirror sunglasses, has a handgun shoved down the waistband at the front of his trousers. Rossa, the youngest, whispers to me, if that gun fires, it'll blow his pants off. I think this is one of my lesser worries. We fill in a report. The boss tells me to listen carefully. Your car is gone forever. It will not be recovered. You must plan now to get home to Ireland. I will call the Irish Embassy and then we will take you to Termini train station to hire another car. A few phone calls later, we've informed the insurance company of our predicament and have an appointment at the Villa Spada, the Irish Embassy, for the next day. We book a flight home, check into our accommodation and have a dejected dinner that evening in Trastevere. Owen looks at my long face from his wheelchair. Grinning, he launches into the chorus of Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face. What's the matter you? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad. It's a nicer place. Ah, shut up your face. We all burst into laughter. The words of Dario, the cop philosopher, return to me once more. You are all safe, all together. The following day, we drive across town to the Irish Embassy on Via Giacomo Medici, close to the Vatican. The ambassador greets us with coffee and dolce. He tells us the history of the Villa Spada, 
Unfortunately, he can do nothing for Duke the dog, who must get his own passport from the Italian authorities. Without an official pet passport, Duke will go into enforced quarantine. Owen will lose his working dog, his partner, his world, our world, will fall apart. A frantic Google search reveals that we must travel out of Rome to get the necessary travel documents. The clock is ticking. We race up the autostrada to Siena, to the Department of Agriculture, veterinary section. Our clothes are getting dirtier. I have not shaved since the theft of, well, everything. When we get there, they're already pulling down the shutters for the day. I lift Owen out of the rental and the entire family, wheelchair and golden retriever, make it through the door of the building. Just. Initially, the Italian vets ask us to leave. They've no jurisdiction over an Irish dog. No, wait, I say. I start to tell them, with the help of Google Translate, of the theft of our family car in Roma. Nostra macchina rubata. The vets fall silent. They confer in hushed staccato whispers, staring all the while at the dishevelled Irish family. Understanding suddenly dawns on them. Mamma mia. They hug Owen to Soro mio. They hug each of us in turn. Duke gets a hug too. Duke is photographed. His chip is scanned. His Italian passport is produced. The fee is waived. They ask me his name. Duke, I say. Il Duce, they laugh as they enter his name into his new documents. Two days later, we fly home, exhausted, filthy, but despite everything, elated. The Aer Lingus staff pat Duke on the head and assist Owen off the plane at Terminal 2. Cool, wet Dublin. As we leave the terminal, we face one last trial. Customs officers stop us and demand to see Duke's papers. Why are you bringing an Italian dog into Ireland? Well now, I start to tell them the story. They wave us through. In the taxi home, Owen and the teens say, that was so cool. And even, can we do that again? We're all safe. We are all together. Il Duce wags his tail. Hello, I'm Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno, two. Shoot the pool, Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick. All the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks. I always got to follow rules. Boy, it make me sick. It is hard to watch the short autobiographical film Hiding in the Grain, made by Czech filmmaker and recent NCAD graduate Bara Palchik without being reminded of all that is unfolding in Ukraine today. Watching her film, I think of the stunned faces of small children, walking through the night towards unfamiliar borders, arriving in unknown countries, holding mothers close while fathers dissolve into the darkness of war. And I wonder, how will those children make peace with such events? How will they be in years to come, when this time of upheaval and uncertainty has been absorbed into their deepest sense of themselves and their world. 
Palchik, who now lives in Ireland, was born in former communist Czechoslovakia, a homeland which changed its name three times, split into two halves, then separated completely before she was 11 years old. Inspired by autobiographical filmmaker Mark Leckie's use of found images from the internet in his work, Palchik wondered if watching footage of Czechoslovakia in the 1980s and 90s might help her to understand more clearly her own persisting sense of loss and what, in her earliest experiences, still influences the adult she is today. Her film, shown at NCAD's recent graduate show, opens with a sepia-toned view through the window of a train, moving away from a Czech city. I lived there, she says, and asks, have you ever felt a peculiar emotion going through your whole body while travelling from the place you called home? This emotion was one she knew well, not belonging. Belonging was something she sensed others felt, but she did not. A stream of found images then evoke her earliest memories. Sunlight flickers through netting on a hammock. An old wooden cuckoo clock tick-tock ticks. And then a core memory. 1986. Chernobyl. Its explosion mirrored in the iris of her own eye. She remembers sitting in the kitchen the morning after the disaster, her mother telling her and her sister that they could die. The television warning that the poison that could kill them had neither smell nor colour, but sometimes had the scratch and crackle voice of a radiation counter. On that day, she knew what she calls her very first fear. From that day, she knew that her mother could die. Every time her mother was late, she thought, this is it. She was four. The found footage that revived that memory opens out into grainy images. Children playing with gas masks. It felt like a game, her voice whispers. I was six. Distant echoes of Czech words, shadowy laughter hovering somehow on the edge of tears. Her own footage of friends dancing, playing pool, intimacy and farewell shimmering in the dim light even as they laugh and flirt with each other. In the act of filming, in the moment of trying to catch and hold them all together, there is a sense of loss. Gone. Palchik's voice says as the images fade. Her later footage in Ireland is lusher and more fertile, but Palchik remains preoccupied with what is gone. Her lens explores the interior of an old stone cottage, overgrown with nature and time, searching for hints of what she calls the invisible yet so present past. Who lived here, she asks. What was their story? Gone, her own voice answers. Yet, of Ireland, she finally feels able to say, this is it, homeland. Somehow in revisiting her earliest losses, in touching the memories, as she puts it, something has settled in her and opened a capacity to realise a sense of home. Her film closes as it opened, 
looking through the window of a train travelling from city into countryside and beyond. But now, instead of feeling that something is being left behind, Palchik seems to be taking her memories with her as she travels out into the world. The closing words of the film are of another reclaimed memory, of playing hide-and-seek in her grandmother's garden. She has slipped into the garage where a large barrel of chicken seed is stored. She climbs into the barrel, sinks into the warmth of the grain, feels it gather around her, fragrant, comforting, and she remembers the feeling that everything was all right, that she and the whole world were safe and held in that barrel. I am five, her voice says. It's summer at my granny's garden, covered in the seed in the barrel. I'm home, hiding in the grain. I think of those bewildered children crossing the Ukraine border into countries they barely know the names of and hope that they, like Palchik, carry a memory deep in their being of a moment in a granny's garden, a memory so redolent with warmth and safety that it can be called up to challenge whatever today's traumas leave behind. I hope that someday today's experience of fear and loss may be eased by the warmth of even deeper experiences of love. my sitting room wall is an old black and white photograph of ten smiling faces taken on the 19th of April 1980. I remember very clearly when it was taken and the memories it evokes because as a young starstruck teenager I was a member of the Irish jury that year, the year Johnny Logan won the Eurovision Song Contest. Broadcast from The Hague, it was the beginning of a long love affair with television and with Eurovision. And what added to the excitement was the fact that RTE broadcast a short television programme called Meet the Jury, just before the contest began. It was a short programme introducing each member of the jury and the presenter would ask each jury member a simple question, pertinent to the much-anticipated big event. Even today, I can still rekindle the excitement we all felt at that moment. We began early in the morning were introduced to each other, listened to all the songs, had lunch, debated and took notes. In the afternoon, we watched the live dress rehearsal, took more notes and were then ushered to make-up, returning to the studio sometime later, fit to take part in Dallas. It was our good fortune that the producer was Bill Keating, a much-respected name to many from the world of television. We waited with excitement as the floor manager signalled the beginning of the short programme. Then the familiar introductory music began. The super trooper lights were switched on and the small intimate studio lit up and twinkled more brightly than the jewel-clad members of the jury. Then came my turn. 
my answer to the proposed question rehearsed by heart. Suddenly, they managed to get Johnny Logan on the phone. The presenter chatted and wished him good luck. Everybody clapped and my 30 seconds of fame was very cruelly snatched away. Although crestfallen, it still remains one of those treasured, unforgettable memories. The rules were strict. There were no telephone votes. So when the last song had been sung, the monitors were switched off and switched on again only after the Irish jury had declared its votes. There were heart-stopping moments as Ireland clocked up the final douze-bois. Above the sound of deafening applause from the auditorium, the presenter declared enthusiastically, with 143 votes, Johnny Logan for Ireland has won the Eurovision Song Contest 1980. The jury room erupted with delight and we all subsequently adjourned to celebrate in his honour. Eurovision has certainly given us some memorable moments of music and television. And looking at that old black and white photograph, I have never forgotten the excitement of the night Johnny Logan sang What's Another Year? And the memory of a star-struck teenager who almost had her five minutes of fame. a long time looking out for you but you're not here what's another year I don't know quite what attracted me to the place and lured me in the front door to a different world it could have been the math scores in particular those select few who preferred to attend to their religious obligations from the street and skip communion before surreptitiously disappearing across the road into the pub for their preferred Eucharist of pints. It could have been the image, sepiaed by the sun, that lay thrown down inside the window for years. A picture of Eamon de Valera, and Richard Mulcahy that was anathema to everything I knew about their relationship. They were in old age and far from having the gnarled looks of implacable foes out to settle the civil war once and for all, they were smiling, moving towards each other, shaking hands and looking like they were about to embrace. Maybe it was the old blackthorn boots in the same window that I was convinced belonged to one of the town's illustrious football alumni. Bill Dillon from a few doors down Green Street. Paddy Bond from down in the colony. Or Gega Connor from up on Goat Street. Truth told, the blackthorn's DNA didn't matter because the mere hint of muck on the studs was enough to have me dreaming of Croke Park and taking the ghost train to Dublin for All-Ireland duty. It's Dick Mac's pub in Dingle, and a confluence of many things reeled me in. But most of all, it was Oliver MacDonnell, son of Dick and the Farantee from the time I was allowed cross the threshold and seek out high stool or snug. Oliver was laid to rest earlier this spring. 
and with him a piece of old dingle passed to the other side. It will be a duller place without him, just because he was always that splash of colour set against the greyscale palette. Out there, larger than life around him and looking the part too. The gravelly voice, the dark complexion and lived-in face. The blazers and scarves, the purples and paisleys, the piercing blue eyes and to crown it all, the signature fedora that made him more Great Gatsby than Green Street. It was Oliver as much as the assortment of odd shoes, clogs, awls, spare leather and cutters that adorned his old cobbler's rest that has made Dick Max a rite of passage for people the world over. Seeking the company of pints and people, bespoke whisky and banter. It was Oliver who told me the story behind that photo of the rapprochement between Dev and Mulcahy. That it took a day out in 1967 celebrating the life of Thomas Ashe in Dingle sports field that bears his name for the Cold War and Civil War enmities to end. Oliver told many stories because the close confines of Dick Max were made for them and full of them. It could be about the ordinary or the great and the good whose celebrity is given the Hollywood star treatment on the pavement outside. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, when they visited the peninsula to make Far and Away, are personal favourites. Just because my grand-aunt adopted a donkey that appeared in the film and promptly christened him Tom Cruise. There's Tom Crean who went farther than any Kerry man. Robert Mitchum and Ryan's daughter Sarah Miles are there too. Paddy O'Shea and Christy O'Connor represent the world of sport, while Bono provides that splash of rock and roll. My favourite was Bertie Hughes's story because it was rock and roll in its own way. He was a regular for years an English horse whisperer who worked on the making of Lawrence of Arabia and then followed David Lean to Dingle to work on Ryan's daughter, was adopted by Wes Kerry and never left. You can be sure Dick Max played a part in him staying because once there, you didn't really want to leave. For me, one of those days was 30 years ago this November when Oroctus Nogelga was on in Dingle and in full flow. The place was packed and Oliver Mack was a Laura Enig. It was noisy as people toasted life and the Oireachtas. Suddenly the great Cork footballer Coleman Corrigan stepped forward and stood tallest among the crowd, as full-backs are supposed to do, and started singing above the din. The pub fell silent as a song made famous by Mary Hopkin filled the air. Once upon a time there was a tavern, he began where we used to raise a glass or two. On it went. It was Jean Raskin's song about the White Horse Tavern in Greenwich Village, New York. But in truth, it can be about whatever pub you want it to be. On this early evening in 1992, it was about Dick Max. Oliver Mack loved it. We all did. It was electric. It was rock and roll. Those were the days and we thought they'd never end. Upon a 
sweet nothings at Kilnadrain. I press my cheek to the brickwork of the old house so that she will remember my face, my skin. My fingers trace her pinkish torso, pull gently at a powdery crust of lichens, that orange makeup age insists on, caked to her crevices. Finger pads palpate her flesh for echoes of our racket, our silence, vibrations of our days in her belly. Whisper sweet nothings to the gables. Let voice tease that hidden nook where bats glide out and down in summer. Below on the road, traffic shrieks, rises, then fades to the trees. Rounding seven corners of the house, I touch talismanic edges, shout my love to her back door, to roof, stables and doghouse. Sing and whoop at the window panes so she will hear me. On that final November afternoon, I linger. Punctually then, time blows its whistle. I depart the station of my entire life, past lime tree drifts of burnt ochre and evening blaze. Speed away. See myself shrink. Small. Smaller. Gone. On this morning's programme we heard Remembering Mary Marr by Seamus Dooley. And then Tom Clonan brought us How Duke the Dog Became an Italian Citizen. That was followed by Hiding in the Grain by Sharon Hogan. Then we had My Five Minutes of Eurovision Fame by Mary Wall. Then Those Were the Days by Joe Merhertig. And finally, Sweet Nothings at Kilnadrain, a poem by Mary O'Donnell. The music this morning. First up, there was Bread and Roses, sung by Kate Vickstrom. Then we had Shut Up Your Face, sung by Joe Dulce. That was followed by Songs My Mother Sang by Dvorak, played by Sunghi Lee on clarinet. Then there was What's Another Year, sung by Johnny Logan. And the final piece of music this morning was And Those Were the Days, sung by Mary Hopkin. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.